Let's talk about Baron Harkonnen, who in the original is basically a floating balloon man. And in this is literally a, uh, what's what's the word from Harry Potter? Uh, Dementor? Uh, yes. Like, he basically looks like a Dementor in this. Ah, um, the 80s. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of Plot Devices. We've made it to our Dectennial, as we dubbed last week, and it's totally a thing. I've called Webster's Dictionary. They haven't called me back. My name is Brandon King. I am your host for today, alongside one of my co-hosts, Samantha Corvaya. Sam, how are you doing today? I am great. I am excited to talk about all the stuff we got today. How about you? Decent. Again, I haven't gotten a call back from Webster's Dictionary. Uh, has Noah Guzman, our other co-host, gotten a call back from Webster's Dictionary? Unfortunately, I'm way too busy. I am uh, only talking about Dune. That's it. Can't wait till we get there. Only Dune. O- only- also because he's only a celebrity on stage, but that's fine. <laughs> on that later. Also, we've made it 10 episodes. I've made terrible improv joke intros, and neither of you have told me no yet. This is the miracle in itself. Yes, Oh, and. wait for it. <laughs> yes, and. So seriously, guys, I mean, we're, we're doing the thing, and I'm really happy that we've gotten this far so far, and I'm excited for everything to come in the future episodes, too. This is great. Thank you, listeners. Yes, you guys are the best. We don't have a name for, like, the Plot Devices fandom yet, but eventually it will come. We're going to get started today with main topics, but before we jump into that, we figured we'd bring this up first. As you guys probably know from, you know, the news cycles of the last couple of days, uh, there was an incident on the set of uh, Rust, the new Western starring Alec Baldwin, who's also producer on that. Joel Souza is the director on that. Uh, it has just been shut down because there was an incident on set where a prop gun was mishandled. There have been reports of union walkouts. There have been reports of uh, worker malpractice. But regardless of where things are coming from, that is all the developing story. The result of it is that uh, Joel Souza, the director of the film, has been hospitalized from a gunshot wound. And that cinematographer, uh, Helena Hutchins, uh, has been killed as a result. Um, this is terrible. And on a number of reasons, we are absolutely floored by this. And has does the film community been at large? And we didn't want to make it a full topic today because, again, the story is still developing. But the reality is a woman on the job was still killed who has been dubbed a really big rising upcoming star in the world of cinematography. Uh, she was an AFI scholar. She had done a couple of number of films uh, prior to this. And we just want to send off our thoughts and condolences to her uh, to her family as well. She's survived by her husband and her son, uh, who have been incredibly supportive and graceful on Twitter about all the support as well. There is also a fund set up uh, by AFI in honor of uh, Helena Hutchins. Check that out and go check out her films as well. We'll leave some links in the description as well. She did a uh, film called Arch Enemy with uh, Joe Manginello, which is actually really solid. I completely forgot about it, but... If there's plenty of other that she's been worked on. Her work will live on, and we just want to send her thoughts and condolences out to uh, everyone involved. Uh, let's get on to some lighter stories of the day. Uh, Uncharted is a thing that's been in development for a long time, and it's finally happening. Uh, we're finally getting a movie from Uncharted. Albeit not the one everyone wants. We'll get to that in a minute. The first trailer for Sony's Uncharted film uh, dropped earlier this week based on Naughty Dog's video game series of the same name. Again, all the equipment in the world, all the success in the world. The film will serve as an origin to the game's events, starring Tom Holland as the iconic treasure hunter Nathan Drake, who hones his skills under his mentor Victor Sully Sullivan, played in this movie by Mark Wahlberg, as the two travel around the world solving all the weird, mysterious mysteries the world has to offer. Uh, Zombieland and Venom director Ruben Fleischer will direct the project that also stars Antonio Menderes, the 100's Tati Tati Gabriel, and Truth or Dare's Sophia Ali, and Uncharted is set to hit theaters on February 18th of next year, 2022. 
Uh, Sam, I want to go to you first. What is your experience with the Uncharted franchise as a whole? And what have your thoughts been on this? I know that, again, you know, the casting of Tom Holland has received mixed results, uh, but I want to know what you thought of this first trailer as the first look. Yeah, so as much as I rant on about how much I love video games, I actually haven't played an Uncharted game yet. And I think it's because I I don't often play like action adventures. I should play more of them because of how iconic they are. But having said that, yeah, haven't played an Uncharted game yet. You know, like I can understand the mixed feelings about Tom Holland playing uh, Nathan Drake. I just, I think it's because everybody's so used to seeing this older version of him, especially the older version of Sully too. I mean, that was kind of, that kind of threw everybody for a loop when we saw Mark Wahlberg um, looking very young, Uh, but you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm positive for it. I'm, I'm hoping that it'll do well. Um, But I'm, I kind of approach it cautiously. Like I do most, most things because uh, I think video game movies are infamously known for being okay more than phenomenal you know what i mean and especially because it's promising when you look at the trailer some of the the visual cues are very uh reminiscent of moments that are in the game like the um the like from what i'm told the airplane scene where you have all those cargo boxes coming down that's basically shot for shot in another game but i if i'm not mistaken i believe i read that it was from uncharted 3 and then it's like this is supposed to be the first movie but it's from a third iteration of it so i don't know we'll see what happens from there but um i'm interested in also hearing noah's thoughts too because he is also the video game resident boy (laughs) as i betray our screens because i'm flashing my xbox controller yes i I have i have dual um ownership of the consoles there's a ps4 in my living room i got an xbox in my bedroom um obviously i spend more time with one over the other i'll let you decide in your heads which one that one is um uncharted the film with Tom Holland, Mark Wahlberg. I am. I, I'm not too. I'm not too scared to enter this with like high hopes. I think that they're actually going to turn it out. I think based on the trailer, uh, yeah, a lot of what Sam says is uh, the scenery, the environments, the situations do call back to the video games I have played. Um, two of the Uncharted games, and actually, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, Tati Gabrielle because. They are are actually in um, the show You. And so I'm going to be touching on that like in a quick hit later. But uh, she plays a prominent character in You season three. So to see her in this in this new film, like I'm very eager to become a fan. Also introducing the character from Uncharted's second game, uh, the character of Chloe Frazier, uh, portrayed by Sophia Ali. Uh, that's just an interesting character. Uncharted 2 was actually the first game that I experienced with uncharted so uh that character is one that i knew from like the beginning of my time with it and so to see it brought to life on screen i just hope you know i hope these characters are fleshed out i hope they're not just like one dimensional and i hope that the story can't be you know predicted from a mile away you know uh brandon are you a fan of video game movies like what's your take on this i mean look the track record of video games is not great uh although I will absolutely go to bat for the recent Tomb Raider movie. I thought that was excellent. Uh, But I have had my doubts about this, specifically because if you look at the director history, they were on such a good track. Sony was on such a good track with this. They had Sean Levy attached with Joe Carnahan writing the script. They had uh, Dan Trachtenberg, who did 10 Cloverfield Lane attached. They had Travis Knight, who did Kubo and the Two Strings attached. And then all of them went away and they said, you know what, Ruben Fleischer, you made us $800 million with Venom. You can take this. It's no problem. And I was like, like, I like the Zombieland movies. I do not like Fleischer's uh, other work. Like, you all know how I feel about Venom, enough said. But I will simply, and, you know, the the commentary as well, the commentary on the trailer, I should say, as well, 
it, yeah, it's apt. Like, if you're expecting Uncharted from the video games, I'm mostly familiar with the fourth game. I watched the uh, cutscene movie for Thieves' End. It's fantastic. Um, and I will simply say that this trailer looks good. It looks fine. Um, I'm not, you know, hooting and hollering about it. I don't think it's going to be amazing. But if it gave me enough hope to look at the set pieces for it, I'm, I like what it looks like. I like the dynamic between Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg the latter of whom I do not think is a good choice for this at all, but fine. Um, so, you know what? It's fine. I'll take it. I'll, I'll happily go see it. I want to be briefed on the video games for it, but I don't think it's going to please fans. And Brandon, I'm on the other side where there's a voice in my head that goes, I don't know if Tom Holland can do Nathan Drake, but I don't want to shout that out just yet. I, I'm not ready to blast that out into the universe. Um so please protect me. But yeah, I have seen the discourse of the last few weeks of like, oh, is Holland's, you know, Tom Holland's non MCU career, you know, in the trash? I'm like, no, no, it definitely is not. No, and I but think it, that a problem a lot of people have is that he has a baby face too. I think for some people, they're like, that's not Nathan Drake. But yeah, I mean, like you saw the current war, Sam. So like you know that when he's supposed to play kind of an adult, eh, okay. Yeah, it's 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 okay. It kind of looked like. Yeah, that that might be a conversation for another day. (laughs) I will just I will just say that it was not the best look on him. I totally agree. Let's move on to our second main topic of the day. AMC Theaters is going to be offering open caption screenings. This is something that a lot of deaf and hard of hearing advocates have been talking about for years. And last week, AMC Theaters announced that 40 percent of its currently open U.S. theaters will be outfitted with some form of open caption screenings. For those of you unaware, closed captions can be turned off manually, usually on a uh, separate device that is on the back of the seats or that audiences get as a result. Open captions are non uh, are non-negotiable. They are always on the screen. They're always an option there uh, or always non-option there, I should say. Uh, and so AMC announced that there are at least going to be certain screenings of these that will be outfitted on in markets, I should say, that will have more than one U.S. theater, so which is the 40% number. In a letter to investors, uh, AMC Chief Content Officer Elizabeth Frank said the step was an important step for hearing audiences' uh, accessibilities and for those without English as a first language. This news comes on the heels of Eternal's theatrical release uh, on November 5th, which features a deaf character in Laura Ridloff's Macari, as well as the last year where a lot of audiences have become more accustomed to subtitles based on Netflix and HBO Max, making them more widely available. AMC has said that the majority of showtimes will continue to be offered with closed captioning services. So if you are looking for those, they are more than willing to accommodate you. And they will obviously all be available listed on the AMC Theaters website and the AMC mobile app. Uh, No, I want to go over to you first. Uh, What do you think about this as a step for for hard of hearing audiences? And is this good enough of a step? Because I have heard some people say that this doesn't take it far enough. I think the fact that AMC being as widespread as they are making this move is a big step from, from where I stand, because even back to our first episode, I think we were talking about accessibility when it came down to uh, like same day releases. And there was a comment from you, Brandon, that said like, why aren't we having close, closed captioning in, the, in all theaters? And so to then advance to this uh, story development, it was like, wow, like, and, and, I'm so happy to see the beginnings of that starting to come. Uh, they're experimenting uh, with different show times, like, afternoon evening shows right now before setting kind of like i guess a standard for what will be available for captioning in theaters but i think these steps are important and they do they do feel major from somebody who like is shocked to hear it because all i've known in theaters is no captioning and so there are so many audiences out there who who need that or who prefer that to better enjoy their experience so why not start making moves for that to happen so this feels like a win and it feels like a step in the right direction um I'd be happy to to hear about other theaters following suit. 
Yeah. And to, also, sorry, oh, I'm so ahead. sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, I, I, I was just going to bring up the point that Regal and um, and Cinemark haven't reached for comment. They have not commented on their availability for caption theaters yet. Sorry, go on, Sam. No, no, no problem. Sorry to interrupt you. So I think that with our closed captioning here, I consider it a win as well. But I also uh, am not part of the deaf or hard of hearing community, so that's something I would like to hear more on from people within there. So you know, if anybody's listening to this and um, following along, let us know what you think. But for me, I consider it a win just because any sign of of uh, accessibility, I think is a win. And I, I hope that they're trying for all the good reasons too, not as a marketing reason to try to draw more people to their theaters, because let's be honest, like theaters everywhere are just suffering, especially from the pandemic. And so I'm hoping that it's all with good intentions, but I think it's great, especially because even, you know, I think that captions are still helpful, uh, even if you uh, have, you know, the full abilities, because just for example, with Dune, there were actually a couple times in Dune with the whispering, I couldn't understand what they were saying a couple times. So I'm like, man, I wish I had captions for these, um, which is why you go back and watch it on HBO Max. But not all movies that uh, are in theaters have that luxury to be on a streaming service at the same time. So I think this is really exciting. And hopefully this means that they will increase the amount of theaters that will show closed captioning once they kind of do this trial run, if you will. Yeah, and again, that I think is the biggest asterisk about this, which is that, you know, this is a good step. This is obviously, you know, meant for audiences who have needed and wanted a theatrical experience for a long time. But if you look into the investor letter, it is only certain showtimes in certain markets where there are a certain number of theaters. Like if you're in an, if you're in an area without multiple AMC theaters, you're out of luck on this. If, as I've seen on Twitter, if you want a showtime that is not, you know, three or four in the afternoon, you're out of luck on this. That being said, a step in the right direction is a step in the right direction. You know, I mentioned last week, with Only Murders, how that is just another example of how we are getting more hard of hearing and deaf representation between that, obviously, Eternals with Coda. And again, a good step is a good step. This, I think, will help a lot more audiences than I think people realize. And I think I wonder what Regal and Cinemark or Theater uh, are thinking on that on that capacity. But in other words, I think it's good. I just wish it went a bit further. We are going to move on then to our final main topics of the day. For those of you who may not have known, and I'm sure we have a couple of people in this who are in like the fan cast spheres, one of the questions that has been coming about since Robert Pattinson was cast as Batman has been who are going to play his villains, including who is going to be the Joker if he ever does show up. Or she, because according to a few fan campaigns, his Twilight co-star Kristen Stewart is the best and obvious choice for this. And recently, she didn't deny it. Uh, she was asked by Variety in the press junket for uh, Spencer about whether she would be interested in tackling, tackling the Joker as a character. And this is what she said. I love the energy behind that. It's really been done so well. I feel like maybe we don't traipse over it, but I love that gusto. Let's figure out something else. I'm totally down to play a freaky, scary person. So again, she didn't deny it, but she seemed interested in it. Stewart is next going to be seen as Princess Diana in A24 Spencer, which is set for release on November 5th. I'm sure we're all ecstatic about that. But Sam, I want to go to you first. Should the Joker be a woman? And beyond that, should it be played by Kristen Stewart? I say, why not? You know, why shouldn't Joker be a woman? I think that's pretty cool. And, you know, I think there were also iterations in the comics. Correct me if I'm wrong, because you're our, our comic friend here. I think there were iterations of the Joker that was female. Um, so uh, nothing wrong with that. And to my knowledge, I don't think it's been shown on um, air at any capacity, either, whether that's in a film or TV show. So why not? Uh, but I also feel bad because people just can't seem to escape Twilight. You know, like these two actors are trying so hard to put Twilight behind them. And I mean, especially their relationship, too, because they did have some kind of relationship in the past. And I, I feel bad because it feels like media and press can't drop it. Um, but I, I think there's slightly a reason for that because they have good chemistry and everything. So 
it could it be a twilight reunion in the future maybe but i could also see kristen stewart playing somebody else like i don't know like poison ivy or somebody in the future too like i think that the doors are wide open for her and i think that her and robert pattinson seem to respect each other enough when the other is mentioned in interviews that i I mean i think they would have that professionalism to work together again in some way so it could be interesting and i am all for a female joker for sure how about you noah yeah same thing on the escaping their relationship it's like i i look at her comments and i go well who even asked her who even asked her this when she's out here doing press for Spencer like why bring up you know a, f- a former a former partner or past partner and then ask about like their poss- possible chance to reencounter on screen i mean yeah it's fun to play the fantasy game of like let's see if these two stars can get back together um i mean on screen of course uh, and imagining Kristen Stewart as the Joker, I kind of, I almost saw her acting in my head to portray the Joker and, and it was just fun to play with in your head. Like this is a cool fantasy. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm more behind. Yeah. Let's, let's give her a new character to portray. Let's give her somebody that isn't so popularized from the, from all the movies of Batman that we've had in the past. Like we've had Two-Face, we've had Penguin, we've had multiple of both. And so, uh, there was an article that was touching upon other very famous villains in the Batman verse that could be done. Even in our discussion of DC fandom, she could play somebody that belongs to the court of the court of owls, or I was reading a name, professor pig. Do I know who that is? No, but that's exactly why Kristen Stewart should play them because I'm ready to become introduced to a new character from a talent like Kristen Stewart. So yes, please join the Batman verse. Um, whether it's Joker, whether it's a new character, uh, I'm ready to see her play somebody like she says, free and scary. I have many levels of comments on this, and I know I have to make it quick. First of all, there is nothing about the Joker that says it can't be a man, woman, non-binary person. There's nothing about gender that links into Joker as a character, so we can shut up about that. Number two, Kristen Stewart is a phenomenally talented performer. Clouds of Sills, Maria, personal shopper, I can go down. I even liked her in Charlie's Angels. I thought she was great in that. And at this point in her career, I know we have the whole, you know, escaping Twilight thing. And that is fairly apt, especially with the fact that they had a personal relationship at the time. That complicates things. But both her and Robert Pattinson are very different points in their career and have matured immensely, both as people and as talents. And I would love to see that kind of dynamic, specifically the kind of noir aesthetic that Matt Reeves is bringing to his aesthetic of Batman. And beyond that, like, I get it, like, fan casting could be a bit annoying sometimes. This is really cool because it's one of those things where I'm like, that's so out of the box, would piss off so many diehards, and I am a pure fan of that. Again, this is neither a confirmation nor a denial that would ever happen, nor that Joker would even be in Matt Reeves' verse. I don't even know if he wants to use the Joker as a character, but if he is, I would hope he gives Kristen Stewart a call. Confirmed, Brandon just wants to watch the world burn for (laughs) all of those fans out there. But I'm here for it. I'm here for support. I agree. (laughs) If I may quote every mid-2000s YouTube video, I'm the Joker, baby. Oh, no. That just awakened a bunch of memories in my brain. (laughs) Uh, Oh, early YouTube, you were a thing. Let's hop into our quick hits portion. This is the part of the show where if you're just looking for a few quick bits of news flashes that aren't the main topics... We found some things that we're really passionate about to talk about. We're going to time ourselves for a minute each and each run it down. Uh, I will go first if no one else wants to. Okay. Uh, let me grab a timer. Should have had this ready. Okay. <clears throat> Three, two, one. 
So, Mel Brooks fans, we have waited a long time for more Mel Brooks content. We've waited for Spaceballs 2, The Search for More Money, for years before I was even born, and he is back. Uh, History of the World Part 2 was officially announced this week. Variety broke the news that Brooks's classic, quote-unquote, uh, History of the World Part 1 will be receiving a sequel series on Hulu aptly titled History of the World Part 2. Brooks himself will return to executive produce and write the series alongside a pretty all-star cast of writers with Nick Kroll, Wanda Sykes, and Ike Barinholtz, who you've probably known from a bunch of other comedy projects here and there. He comments on the news saying, quote, uh, from, this is from the Variety article, I can't wait to once more tell the real truth about all the phony baloney the, the world has been conned to believing our history, which is such a Mel Brooks thing to say. Uh, the release date has not been set, but production is set to begin in spring 2022. Ten seconds left. I don't love history of world part two but i love the ambition of it all i love segments of it all i love the creativity of it all and just the fact that we are getting mel brooks at 95 years old i cannot wait to see what he can do with this and time all right well i hope you don't mind sam i'm just gonna jump right into this okay all right so i'll go ahead and start my minute by the way great job brandon um okay let's go and right now all right so there was a release window announced for the raised by wolves this is really scott's hbo max series covering androids who are raising uh, the next population of humans on a alien planet um season two the release window is announced for early 2022 we don't have a trailer yet we don't really know what's going on especially after that cliffhanger of season one if you have not checked out raised by wolves on hbo max already please do so it is a it is bonkers of a show there is um religion involved there's like philosophy of life there's um you know how can robots raise children with morals it's and it's funny there's like there's jokes in there too um and so the next thing i want to cover is maluma the colombian artist is joining the cast of encanto as character mariano i cannot wait to see how he lends his voice to the character and how he is involved in the story i know the song that he's a part of is going to be added to my spotify playlist immediately upon release i hope you all are waiting for that too that's all all right, Stan, moving on to you. In three, two, one. So for all of you fellow fans who are fans of To All the Boys franchise on Netflix, I am so happy to announce from earlier this week, if you missed it, that there is going to be a new spinoff series based off of um, the sister, Kitty, and it's going to be called like XO Kitty or maybe it's Hugs Kisses Kitty, one or the other. That series is going to be coming here. It's a new young adult series that's inspired by that franchise. And um, in the show, it is still co-created by Jenny Han, who is the author of the books, and uh, Sasha Rothschild. And uh, Kitty learns about love when she moves halfway across the world to reunite with her long-distance boyfriend. Because if you remember from the last movie, she kind of had some chemistry with uh, this boy that she met in South Korea. So I am here for it. I'm very excited. I think Anna Cathcart is a, you know, a fantastic kitty. So I'm so excited to see more of her. And uh, yeah, pumped to see it. And time. Woohoo! Quick hits over. You know, recently, this is a side, but recently my partner told me, she's like, there's a portion of your pod where things go really fast and I have trouble keeping up. And I was like, is it the part where we just, <laughs> we do our <laughs> in a minute? She goes, yeah. And I go, well, that's kind of the point. And she goes, I know, that's the point. It's just, it moves really fast for me. So sometimes I replay it. And I said, okay. <laughs> so don't feel bad if you're listening and you go, hold on, let me just rewind 15 seconds because what did they just say? We are zooming right here, okay? And it's an effort. So I hope you all like that. Because all of us talk fast, too. Are you trying to tell us that those repeat listens I see in our Spotify analytics are her? They're all her. <laughs> so oh, we got to oh. gotta give a special shout out next time to our Patreons who are non-Patreons. <laughs> I thought our audience was bigger. Um, 
We are going to move on to our new release segment of the week. This is probably going to be our most densely packed part of the show there is. We have four main new releases to talk about, starting with The Electrical Life of Louie. You got it. It is Louie. Just do it over again. (laughs) (laughs) The Electrical Life of Louie Wayne. Uh, Sam, before we crack up even more, just tell us about Benedict Cumberbatch and Cats. I want to hear about it. Yeah, I mean, I don't blame Brandon for getting uh, messed up on the name because I did too, as mentioned in last week's podcast when I said Lois Lane because I was on uh, the DC fandom high. Anyways, Cats, Benedict Cumberbatch, Claire Foy. If any of those sound really neat to you, well, you're in luck because there is a movie out called The Electrical Electrical Life of Louis Wayne. And um, basically, if you haven't heard of him, uh, this is a biopic about an artist. And most people probably know his work by like these cats that are very anthropomorphized um they have ginormous eyes and they're super colorful paintings so it's about uh this movie is about that artist who benedict cumberbatch plays so it is uh co-written and directed by will sharp so it is a super super colorful biopic and um Honestly, I think that it's it's a pretty cool idea because I know that for most people, if they don't know the artist, it's just some extra story on who this person was. And the trailer, if you watch it, is actually super friendly looking and it it feels like it capitalizes off of his cat paintings. But in reality, it's actually more about what made him the person he became. And to be honest, it's kind of a sad tale. I didn't expect to feel as sad as I did when I finished watching the movie. But because of some of those sad themes in there, I think that the acting really stands out from uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and from Claire Foy, who plays his wife named Emily. Uh, And the two of them have really good chemistry together. And in my opinion, it kind of makes the movie bearable because the plot is a little slow. Just in my opinion, the first half of it it's a lot of exposition in my opinion and a lot of dancing when they're kind of courting each other and uh i'm kind of not here for that i I was looking forward more to you know behind the scenes on the painting and the cats but i do also understand the exposition at the same time because you could see where he got this inspiration from through his wife and their love for this one cat that they find in the rain by itself just a stray cat so um you know i think that it's it's a really nice movie it's just that it's a little slow we don't even talk about cats until an hour into the movie and the movie is just about like two hours you know in my opinion it, it could be a little bit better but it's not bad especially again if you like cats so i kind of gave it like a solid six out of ten um because of those reasons on my review for odyssey online but if you are interested in seeing the movie it is in select theaters uh starting friday october 22nd so by the time you hear this uh, it'll be out for you or you can see it on amazon prime starting uh november 5th as well so uh definitely check it out if that's something that interests you so just to wrap with um this i will give it over to brandon now who has our review for ron's gone wrong uh, side note, our next film, The French Dispatch, I wanted to be able to talk about, but apparently that was not available. So I saw this instead. So you're all welcome. I endured this for you. Um, I, I mean, like I'm a- excited about it, too, because Brandon's one of our animation kings here. So I'm I'm excited to hear it. I think it worked out in a sense. Yes, you all call me the animation king. It just means I'm more stingy with it. Uh, Ron's Gone Wrong. This is from uh, Jean-Philippe Vigne and uh, Sarah Smith. Sarah Smith, who uh, founded the new company Locksmith Animation, this is their first film out of that under the Disney banner. She also directed Arthur Christmas, which is criminally underappreciated, and all of you should watch it. Um, no, but this is Ron's Gone Wrong. Uh, it stars uh, Jack Dylan Glazer, of course, from uh, It and Shazam and a bunch of other things. He stars as Barry, who is this young, kind of, you know, uh, kind of shy, anxious kid. He doesn't have that many friends. He lives with his dad, played by Ed Helms. 
and his uh, grandmother, voiced by Olivia Coleman, who is nearly unrecognizable in this, by the way. Uh, but yeah, he kind of just, you know, goes about his day. He doesn't have a ton of friends. His teachers and parents are all worried for him. He kind of likes being by himself. He doesn't know how to make friends. This is also in a world where there is this kind of Apple slash Microsoft hybrid uh, that makes these things called B-Bots. And what they are is essentially like living autonomous iPads, essentially. Like there are these customizable kind of, you know, blobby looking things. If you know, like the Mies from, you know, the Wii channel, it's sort of like that. Uh, but they can do basically anything. Like they can, you know, run apps and everything. And, you know, it's this big technological. And poor Barney is the only one who doesn't have one. And he begs one for his birthday. So his dad gets him one. But this is a bit defective, and it's voiced by Zach Galifianakis. And Ron, as the serial number of the B-Bot is Ron something, 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 but Barry shortens it to Ron. And they kind of just go on this weird adventure. They start developing a friendship while the uh, while the tech giant's founder, uh, voiced by Justice Smith, and his assistant, voiced by uh, Ron Delaney, basically go on this thing of, uh, this bot is defective. He's screwing up all of our analytics and everything. We have to find him and figure out what's wrong with him. There are a lot of echoes of other films in this. I found a lot of E.T. in this, a lot of her in this. And if either of you guys ever saw uh, Robot and Frank with uh, Frank Langella. Oh my gosh, no, I actually haven't seen that, but I've always meant to. There's vibes of that in this, of kind of like the sort of slice of life things between, you know, humans and robots, and especially the third act, and I won't get into it. But I will say, I, I tweeted out this earlier, I'm conflicted on this, because on the one hand, I don't think this is for the target audience. Like, this is supposed to be for, you know, younger kids and, you know, clearly, you know, like elementary school kids who are having trouble finding friends and kind of exploration of the technological era, technological era, I should say. But I didn't find it all that funny, aside from a couple of jokes. Uh, I didn't find it animation-wise that amazing, aside from a couple of moments. And yet... The characters are really charming. Like, again, Olivia Coleman almost runs away with this thing as the grandmother. She is so wonderful and murderous and like, uh, I, I love it. But Jack Dylan Blazer and Zach Galifianakis actually have really fun chemistry in this. Like, Zach Galifianakis is clearly having a time, you know, with all the glitches that Ron comes up with. And Jack Dylan Glazer can, you know, play like this kind of innocent kid in his sleep. Where the film really surprised me, though, is again towards the third act. Because once we get to about the halfway point, you're kind of left with this assumption of like, Oh, like it's going to be Barty and Ron and the tech giant's going to come in and there's going to be these big overarching stakes. Everyone learns a lesson about technology. Bing, boom, the end. It's Mitchell's versus the machine's light. And it kind of is that. But then we get more of the movie. And that more of the movie is actually this really kind of this really kind of introspective look at how friendships, especially kids' friendships, kind of develop these weird nuanced webs and like how, especially when you're a kid, you identify to certain angles of kindness and appreciation from your friends. But as you grow up, even within a couple of years, those can fade and you kind of wonder why that is. Like it got me in that space of, I should probably call some of my older friends and wonder like, why have we, we talked in a while? Kind of deeply affected me on a way that I didn't think it would uh, beyond like the whole, you know, technological message and things about, you know, uh, like Barney's mother has passed away. So there's that element of grief in there. But that element of like children's friendships and the nuances of those, I thought was really well done and really well executed in a movie that I don't think is meant for it. I think this is meant to be more, you know, whip, bang, boom, animation style. And it's not really that. And so that's where I'm conflicted on it. So like overall, mid-teens, early adults sort of thing, and you want to see something in animation that could be explored a bit more, I would say go check this out. But as a theatrical exclusive, especially when we're in a space where young kids are not vaccinated yet, like that is still a thing. So I don't know how well this is going to do for those audiences. I can't quite recommend it as highly. So I give it a six, 
great in a lot of aspects of it. I don't think it's, again, I don't think it plays to its target audience as well as it could. But if this is where like Disney's animation subsidiary is not named Disney Animation or Pixar will go, sure, do more of these. So check it out if you're curious. I'm just not over the moon about it. Ron is a cute little bean, though. So for what it's worth, he'd at least make great merchandise. <laughs> but an adorable I, little bean. <laughs> but I, I'm really happy to hear your your thoughts on it, just because I actually didn't expect to feel as emotional as I did when you were describing, like, oh, it'll kind of make you think about connecting with old friends. That's something I would never have picked up from that trailer. So I think that's just a really interesting take and color me intrigued. And I will say, just to end that off, that is an important plot point. It's not something of just like a piece of dialogue. Like it becomes part of the movie. And I was like, okay, we're we're sticking with this. Cool. Neat. No, I'm happy to hear it. Let's uh, transition back over to Sam for Wes Anderson's latest in the weird, wacky world of France. Uh, the French Dispatch, uh, the Liberty Kansas Evening Sun with seemingly everyone in Hollywood involved. Tell us more about it. Yes, as you have said, everybody in Hollywood and their mom is in this movie, which is very Wes Anderson. So I'm sure most of us on uh, social media have seen this is the most Wes Anderson movie that could have happened. And and they're very right. Uh, And especially for his 10th film, coincidentally, on our 10th episode, I'm really happy to talk about The French Dispatch. So um, with this film, we are specifically following a bunch of journalists who work for a paper that's actually based in Kansas, but there is an outpost in a fictional French city, and uh, they are creating a, a magazine piece called The French Dispatch. So funny enough with this, I didn't expect the plot to be as creative as it was. When you're watching this movie, it feels like you're actually reading a magazine. Uh, And so it's because it's broken up in specific chapters. And they even have these really cool, colorful, like cover animated pieces to introduce each chapter. So it's really fun because then you have the introduction and then you have three main pieces and then an epilogue at the end. And so I thought that it was really clever. And basically all these stories, it's like having three stories rolled into one movie uh, for that one price. And I think it is phenomenal it's actually i would go as far as to say it's my favorite wes anderson movie so far and it could be because i am biased i do uh, think it's a love letter to journalism there are a lot of jokes for anybody who is in communications out there you will get some jokes like journalistic uh neutrality uh the fact that editors kind of scrape apart your stories. Um, Like there are some jokes in there that if you were in communications, you'll get it in a different level that you might, that your friends might not. Um, So we do have some Wes Anderson uh, actors returning, such as Bill Murray, Tilda Swinton, Adrian Brody, of course, and um, so many other people. But we also have uh, so many others in this mix, like Owen Wilson, who is also a regular, Benicio Del Toro, Lea Sado, Francis McDormand, Jeffrey Wright, Stephen Park, Edward Norton, Timothy Chalamet, like it goes on and on. So then the first story follows uh, a, an artist who actually ends up in prison because he murdered two guys who were harassing somebody in a bar. So there is reasoning behind it, but the man himself is just tortured. And this journalist specifically is actually at like an expose who is talking about her story. Like, oh, I met this artist and this is what my story is about. So it's a really cool setting in which she's telling this report. And he basically falls in love with this prison guard and she also happens to be his muse for this piece that he paints and adrian brody is kind of like this uh, sleazy art collector who also tries to avoid taxes it's a long story but um that's kind of how those pieces fall together in that first portion 
The second portion is uh, about student protesters and a manifesto that's written, and that's specifically focusing on Timothy Chalamet and Lena Kodri. Excuse me if I pronounced that wrong, but um, that story primarily revolves around those two. And also Francis McDormand, who plays Kremitz, that uh, reporter who's profiling this uh, protest that's going on. And then the third one, which is actually my favorite, is a speci- supposed to be about a food profile on a chef, but it actually ends up being some hard news, as we call it in the industry. And uh, it turns out that there is a kidnapping and this police commissioner's son is kidnapped by a chauffeur played by Edward Norton. And so they're all very different disjoint stories. And those are just scratching the surface on the details. But like any journalistic piece as a whole, it comes together very nicely. And so I think it's really exciting to see those different pieces. Like I mentioned, the third one's my favorite. And I think it's just because Jeffrey Wright's voice is super soothing in it. And it's really cool because kind of like how Tilda Swinton was presenting an expose, um, Jeffrey Wright was presenting on air, um, talking about this article that he wrote um, to Lee Shriver, who plays like a TV host. So they're, they're just different ways that each of their stories are presented and they come together very, very well. Um, just like Wes Anderson being Wes Anderson, there are plenty of beautiful symmetric uh, cinematography moments, and they're really eye-catching with pops of color as well uh, within black and white scenes that kind of happen randomly, but they make sense. And there are really cool moments that act like a magazine once again, where we will have visuals that come to life almost like an infographic where they'll kind of peel away a layer of an airplane and you'll see each of the pieces of the plane. And there was surprisingly an animated moment that represented a comic book like or a comic strip, excuse me. And it was really fun just to watch that unfold. So I highly recommend it. Of course, I, I, you know, I have to be brief, but I could go on and on about this and really shout out to uh, music with them. Uh, is it Alessandra Desplat? Desplat. Uh, Alessandra Desplat. I really have to give a shout out to Alessandra Desplat because the music is phenomenal in this. It's absolutely mesmerizing. And we also have uh, Jarvis Cocker as Tip Top. If you see the movie, that would make sense who Tip Top is uh, for his rendition of Aline as well. It's just amazing. And it was in my head for the next couple nights afterwards. So I gave this movie a solid eight out of 10. And the only reason there are a couple docs on it is because it's a little long in the, in the middle, but the sandwiched, uh, beginning and end, they're great in the movie. Uh, so yeah, I can't recommend it enough. Go see French Dispatch. It's in um, select theaters starting uh, October 22nd, but then it's out everywhere um, Friday, October 29th. So can't recommend it enough. I'm still on that comment of you saying this is your favorite Wes Anderson movie. So I then have to ask, what is the close runner up? <sighs> For me, it's Because actually... I know the Wes Anderson fan is very divisive. It is. And it might not be the obvious choice, but actually I love dogs. We okay, yeah, because I, I really that. appreciated the stop motion animation. I thought the detailing was really great in it, and the story I was fully hooked in it. But uh, you know, if we're choosing a live action movie, um, I actually really liked Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah, Grand Budapest was mine as well. If, Noah, do you have a favorite Anderson project? Oh, why'd you ask me? I've only seen Isle of Dogs. That, then that is it. Yeah, it's that for sure. It's it's great. So yeah, uh, moving on from that review, enough about me talking. I will toss it over to Brandon to go into Dune, our headlining movie for the week. Brandon? So Dune, how doth I describe the, the you know, the Frank Herbert's epic? Um, okay, so for those of you who don't know, this is based on a legendary novel by Frank Herbert. It's become a pinnacle of science fiction for, you know, nerds and sandworm enthusiasts everywhere. 
It The movie revolves around the first half of the book. This follows the story primarily of Paul Atreides, played by Timothy Chalamet. He is a member of House Atreides. Think Game of Thrones, you know, royal family, nonsense like that. House Atreides is much more, you know, noble, warrior-like. They are the arch nemeses of House Harkonnen, which in this movie is led by Stellan Skarsgård. You might know from Thor and a bunch of other things. Much more like warrior, Sparta, brutalistic kind of things like that. Anyways, it takes place 10,000 years in the future, per se. Humanity has colonized the stars, so to speak. And there is a planet called Arrakis. And on this planet called Arrakis, which is affectionately named Dune because of its massive sand dunes, there is an element called spice. And this spice does essentially everything. It is a hallucinogen, it is a fuel source, and it provides the means for light speed travel, which makes it an incredible commodity amongst the universe. The plot of the movie, if I may sum it up after all that backstory, is Paul and his family, consisting of himself, his father uh, Leto, played by Oscar Isaac, and his mother, Lady Jessica, they are... a they are then tasked with managing Arrakis's spice production by the Emperor of the Universe. They accept. This was taken away from the Harkonnens, who see this as a as a desperation. There is behind-the-scenes plotting about that. There becomes a big fight. We'll get to that. But what you need to know is that Paul Atreides, played by Timothy Chalamet, and his family, the House Atreides, they are now the somewhat rightful ruler. There's some colonization things in there. Uh, rightful rulers of Arrakis and its spice production. They meet the locals, uh, the Fremen, uh, who are led by uh, Javier Bardem and Zendaya. And there's this whole other cast of characters you meet throughout. And it is essentially the aspect of Paul coming of age in this incredibly, you know, unstable environment universally, as well as on Arrakis, and discovering his own abilities. His mother is a member of this order called the Bene Gesserit, who are essentially psychics who manipulate events across the universe. So he has those abilities as well, but he is also the inheritor of House Arconan. So as traders, I should say, have I lost you yet? Probably. But if we haven't... Noah, let's go over to you. I know you specifically mentioned in our note sheet that you watched the original. I have as well, so I would like to discuss that a little bit. But what did you think overall of Denis Villeneuve's adaptation of Dune? Brandon, you put all those pieces together and you think, what? How is this going to make sense on screen? Like, there's like, there's houses, there's giant sandworms, there's um, like, colonialism for this and that's thing. not even oh, all of it it's not it's it barely scratches the surface of what is the first half and does and i think that wow you know i was i was pretty breathless like as soon as it started i think that uh yeah i did watch this in an imax theater um and i was blown away so afterward of course i wanted to go back and revisit the original because I, I've had conversations with um, adults growing up in my life and, and they've, they've referred back to Dune as like one of their sci-fi, like, you know, movies that they'll talk about. I'm not going to say it's anybody's favorite because I'm not sure if it was, but um, that being said, I go, let me check it out just to see like how far the original went or like why, you know, this, how it evolved into this, you know, new IMAX experience, the original. <laughs> oh, <laughs> My goodness, those eyebrows. If there's one thing that I could thank this movie enough for, it's the costuming. I think the costuming and the makeup, like all the things that have to do with the character's design, they managed to give you a future look at what all these characters look like. You know, in a time where intergalactic uh, space travel is just like a common term, they, they, they make them look so regal without making them look ridiculous. In the original Dune, we have like hairstyles that were never going to be trendy and then we also have eyebrows that are like fluffed to the heavens and extend all the way until uh it meets their hairline and it's just it's intense because it's a lot 
what better thing to have? Like, as soon as we enter this movie, you know that there's a cast of models. These are like some great looking faces in Hollywood. We have Jason Momoa, Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, Timothy Chalamet, Zendaya, um, Dave Bautista. Everybody looks so good and looks so right for their roles. Um, I think Rebecca Ferguson and that whole house or her lineage as a Benny, Benny Jesuit. Benny Jesuit. That whole lineage and that element in thrown into this whole it's so hard to describe because yeah there's a house that is transported to another planet so that they could mill for the spice but the emperor that sent them there knowingly is aware that there is already harvesters on the planet belonging to the house of Arconan who are brutal who uh dominate the spice trade and so House of Trades is sent there to die, and they seem well aware of that. So they're trying to form an alliance with the Freemen, the people who are um, indigenous to, to the planet. When the movie started out with Zendaya's voice, it, it really gave you a sense of like, yeah, colonialism. And I like that that's how this movie started, because it framed it so that from the beginning, we're kind of on the side of the Freemen. You know, it is it is a tragedy that, that uh, takes place over House of Trades, but when we when we start believing when we start the story believing that the freemen were there first and this is all their material that is being taken um i think it really it really shifts how you look at like the power plays in this movie it's just a technical feat in my opinion it's just the movie sounds great it looks great the music's phenomenal like i could go on and on about that too uh and i'll you know like I'll, we'll go more in depth on it but I loved it. I, I thought it was really good. Um, I'm curious to see if there is a potential part two out there, what that will look like. Cause right away, the movie hits you with doom part one. And for anybody who knows about the book, the book is hefty. It's pretty big. And I saw the movie with a few friends and only one of us had seen the, the original Dune uh, in, in the movie uh, beforehand. And he actually didn't like it as much. And he kind of thought maybe it's because I went into it knowing too much about the plot because it's pretty much word for word. Um, just they covered a lot more ground in the first movie. Um, but then just from a uh, perspective, my perspective, I thought that it was fun. I, I really enjoyed the world. It made me want to see more of that that lore uh, in this universe and you know I, I honestly think that this movie will go for a lot of technical nominations in in the oscars because it's just that good to watch uh i don't know if i'd give it as high a praise as people have said like it's like our generation's lord of the rings that's a pretty high praise i don't know if i'd go as far to say that but still i think it's definitely one of the the biggest cinematic events since the pandemic um so uh brandon what did you think of it too yeah, I watched the first, the, the first, the 1984 Dune with David Lynch earlier this week in preparation for it. And it's not good, but there are things about it I admire, especially as, you know, a newcomer. And because of that, I actually, I had that nice roadmap going is because Dune has always intimidated me as a book, not just, you know, the size, but also the legacy behind it. Like, it feels like there's so much about Dune and so much that Dune represents in terms of sci-fi that I was like, eventually, maybe, but like, it's not, I'm not a huge reader as is, so it just wasn't necessarily my thing. But I also got to see this in IMAX, so thank you again to the press people for that. That was an amazing trip. This movie is stunning. I could go on and on about this. And it, it makes you go on and on because it's a, it's over two and a half hours and it feels it. But unlike, and Noah, you'll remember this when we talk about No Time to Die, 
that movie I did feel like was too long and it felt too long. But this is, I think, overlong. I don't think it's too long. I think almost everything about it needs to be in it. Even the ending, which I, I will say I do have an issue with. I know why it's there, but I, I do. I don't quite love it. But everything that is in here is placed to such a degree. And that goes to Denis Villeneuve and screenwriters, uh, John Spates and Eric Roth as well. I've got to include them as well. This is structured so well. It is epic in scale. You feel it. Greg Frazier's cinematography never lets up. There's a scene in the desert with the um, with the ornithopter is riding across the dunes. And you see them face up. and They're pretty sizable. It's not when you see them in the context of Dune as it is that you realize just how big this is. And again, Frazier's cinematographer just does everything in its power to make you believe how big Arrakis is and how infinitesimal. Even the Fremen are who are connected to all this. And it goes to that different angles of, you know, yes, colonialism, but also that idea of, you know, culturally different nurture versus nature type things. Also, Zendaya is not in this movie that much. If you were going in for her, she is not in that much. She does play a completely key role in this, especially if we get the part two. And gosh darn it, Warner Brothers, please greenlight that part two. Um, Hans Zimmer's score is tremendous. It might be one of my favorites from him. And that's saying something from the guy. Uh, the performances across the board, I think, are fantastic. The only one who I think is giving a little bit of a half-ass is Dave Batista, And that's only because there's a line early on where he screams and it's out of nowhere. But even then, I kind of like it because there's this whole, like, there's this grand operatic swell to it all that I really like. But beyond all that, Timothy Chalamet, I'm sorry, is the real deal. I'm not going to take the hatred for him. He is fantastic in this. And going to Noah's point again, Paul is not a hero. Paul is the protagonist, but he is not inherently good. And that is made, that is made abundantly clear by, you know, Oscar Isaac's journey through the movie and Rebecca Ferguson, who is also tremendous, by the way, in her affiliation with the Bene Gesserit. And those two colliding storylines, which are apparently also a focal point of the book as well. Again, I'm an idiot in regards to that. Those things present Paul as... Yes, our follower. Yes, our focal point, but not our moral center. That's more in characters like Steve McKinley Henderson or, you know, Javier Bardem or characters like that. But overall, and I want to get into more of this, of course, because we have the time now. This is so phenomenally excellent. I was so impressed by this, especially, you know, being a know-nothing nobody going into this. Dear Lord, I was impressed. I could understand the criticism about uh, Dave Bautista, too, because he was actually in it way less than I thought he would be. Yeah. Um, and, and I was kind of surprised by that. And something else too, I, I was also reading a little bit about the story, you know, just for research after I saw the movie, I'm kind of surprised there wasn't more on the empire as well, considering how much of a focal point it seems to be, but maybe that's why if they're hoping for a part two, they'll focus more on the empire as well. So who knows? We also might see or hear more from Zendaya as well, because she was also very underutilized and there must be some kind of story purpose for that. Uh, but yeah, I, I think just wanted to emphasize again, the shout out to Rebecca Ferguson too, because I thought she was like the, one of the best people in this movie. She dominated every scene that she was in and her acting is phenomenal in it so yeah the the cast is is great i i loved it the scene with her and paul in the tent and i i won't spoil it too deeply if you're avoiding this but the scene with her and paul the tent is heartbreaking there i think is a point um a point made across like the socials when you're looking at reviews for this movie and it says that you know it it leaves you like hanging dry by the end of it because you're waiting for that next big moment and you're just slowly like brought to the door of it and then the, and then the movie's over and what that means is like you're brought into this new world this new entire entire reshaping of the freeman's relationship to icarus 
and then the movie's over. But I was not upset that it ended there at all. I, I was waiting for that because, I, you know, I don't look at my phone during the movie, so I don't really get a grasp of like how far along the movie's gone. But once we got that battle between a Paul and one of the Freeman, I thought like, well, Arrakis, I'm so sorry if I'm saying Arrakis, Arrakis correct me um and i just wanted to say around that time it felt like oh is this the climax like i'm okay with it ending it ending here because we've gone through so much and this movie really gives you can't go in here for a casual watch like you have to sit down ready to watch dune and almost take notes because you need to know who the houses are you need to know their relationship to the emperor you need to understand um why they're fighting over spice trade i think i revisited it when I was at home the next day over HBO Max, because yeah, there were pieces where I couldn't hear it. So I really did want to hear what was even said in the tent, or I wanted to understand um, again, what was that beginning treaty made to house Atreides? Like there's so much, there's so much to soak up here that I think one watch through, even if it's an IMAX, like you're going to be left with questions and you're going to be left wanting more. Um, and another note just about improvements from the original. I know it was decades ago, but if anybody wants to have a good laugh, please YouTube the shielding that is the shielding effects that are used from the original. Because in this dune, you have like pretty much like a silhouette of like it it is like a rectangular prism around the body. That's what the character becomes. Like you cannot see their faces. It is just a, a rectangle that is then flying through the air because they're doing like a somersault into a stab. I was going to say, you want to talk about things from the, the original to now they get changed for the better. Let's talk about Baron Harkonnen, who in the original is basically a floating balloon man. And in this is literally a, uh, what's what's the word from Harry Potter? Uh, Dementor? Uh, yes. Like, he basically looks like a Dementor in this. Ah, um, the 80s. <laughs> but walking away from this, I mean, I, I think now's a good time as ever for us to like, let's throw some numbers at it. Like Sam, you said that maybe it's not as high on your list, but I mean, do you all feel comfortable giving this a star rating? Uh, oh, because, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I, I didn't even have high expectations for this movie because I think I was kind of telling myself like, Oh, like it, it's breaking records at the Canes or everybody's giving it a standing, standing ovation. So I, I kind of knew going into it, like it'll, it'll impress me, but I walked away like sock in my mouth. Like what? Like it was, it was so impressive. I'm giving this a nine out of 10. It, it really impressed me. And the, I think Ooh. the time does not hurt it. I think I was satisfied throughout. I was engaged. It was powerful. It was moving. Um, yeah. Yeah. For uh, the technological aspects alone, I, I thought that they were phenomenal. I was blown away by that. So I, I would probably give it like a solid, like eight, eight and a half myself. I will admit, and I said this in my tweet review, I almost wish Noah was reviewing this for Odyssey because I would love to see the headline, Dude, shut me up with a sock. Um, here's the thing. I acknowledge from my initial tweet, like, this is not for everyone. As, like, I know from the person I went to go see it with who had no context of Dune, who was completely lost. And I, I know you're listening to this, and I hope you like this review. Um, but I will fully admit this is not for everyone. It is dense. It is to the point. It's overlong. And it is overwhelming on a sensory level at some points. That being said, I adore this. It, it is a 9.5 for me. It is everything that I think good, great blockbuster cinema can be. I know some people criticize it for being, you know, unemotional. I found it incredibly emotional. I love the ties between Paul and his family. I love the, you know, distinctive relationship between the characters on top of everything that Denis throws at the screen on this. What Denis does with this is staggeringly good in focusing everything to what made those tropes of sci-fi great. On top of Hans Zimmer's score, on top of the performances, it is a spectacle. If you are comfortable, I cannot stress enough, please see this in a theater if you can. If you see it on HBO Max, go support it either way. Please experience it if you can. 
Yeah, basically, if you have the patience for a movie that has a ton of lore, this is this is definitely for you, and you really need to dedicate the the time to go. And and it's going to be well worth it, especially if you have a patience for that. So yeah, by all means, we we really can't recommend Dune enough. And that wraps our Dune conversation. So we are going to transition to our TV stream wars. Uh, nonsensical. What are we even talking about over here? Uh, we're talking just one show today. We're going to be wrapping on only murders in the building. We're discussing the finale, which we all checked out over this last week. Sam, how do you feel now that the show is over? Are you saddened? Are you satisfied? How do you feel? I'm satisfied that I was right episodes ago and I'm like, the bassoonist is sus. I, <laughs> I just want to point that out real quick. But no, I, I'm actually really quite sad that it's done because I really wasn't expecting much from this series. I just thought, okay, it looks funny. I can't really imagine seeing Selena Gomez work out with Martin, the both Martins. And it's like, it actually worked really well. And it was a funny, clever show. I was hooked every episode. And uh, it leaves a lot of loose ends to tie uh, in this finale. So they are expecting another season and I, and they really set it up for a second season. I'm, I'm here for it. I'm excited. And I can't wait. I've been so attached to these characters now that they, I don't know where they're going to go from here, but um, I'd love to hear what you guys have to say about too. I was very impressed. Did we know who committed it from uh, early episodes? Sam did. Uh, but we I did not. I was still waiting for that surprise. Uh, and when it was revealed that um, the bassoonist was the murderer, Jan, uh, that was that was surprising. And, and it was a murder of passion. She did use poison. And we almost see it replicated onto Brazos, which I'm going to call him anyways, uh, almost replicated onto Brazos. And it was a debate for me in my head where I kept on asking myself, is he feigning this this like paralyzation now okay no he's not fading it that much okay but then by the end i'm like is he still doing it like i kept on having to ask myself because he is an actor and in the show he makes it he makes so many ridiculous situations where he's just like oh like he he immediately becomes the character of an actor where every situation he's in he's like acting another another bit out so even when he's sipping from the glass he's um he refers to it as stage sips and i and i just find that hilarious um i like how they gave us the truth behind the crime without having it be some huge, like explosive event. Like I, I liked the slow unraveling. I liked Jan having a very, she was toying with her victim as he was, as he was revealing the truth to her and she's kind of playing with him like, Oh, and how did I do it? Oh, maybe I did this. Maybe I did that. And to me, like that was, that was something I hadn't seen before, but it was so fitting for what this format was, which was, it's still funny. Even, even until it's end, Jan is hilarious. And what we are left with by the very end of it is another murder. So yeah, season two is coming and we have um, the death of the building owner whose name slips my mind, but Mabel's bunny bunny mm-hmm. Mabel's sewing needle is like impaled in the chest of bunny. So we'll have to figure out what goes on there. Um, Oscar's still here. We have some great characters to lead us into the next season. Uh, let's see how their relationship changed. But this was a good finale. We got our first murder solved from our, our new favorite trio. Just to piggyback off of that, I, I did not expect things to come full circle like that from that first episode. Because honestly, so much has happened since the very first episode that I completely forgot Selena Gomez like sitting over someone bleeding out with a tie-dye sweatshirt. I completely forgot that scene until it was brought back at the end of the finale. But I also just wanted to point out real quick, 
can we talk about how the creators basically pulled a page from Wolf of Wall Street with the drug scene when he's trying to get into the elevator? It, to me, it looked like shot for shot, pretty much the same thing, just in a different location where he's trying to press buttons on the elevator, using his feet and rolling on the ground because, you know, he's been drugged by Jan. So it's like, it to me, it looked exactly like Wolf of Wall Street when Leonardo DiCaprio was trying to get into his car. But I digress. That, that was just a moment that I observed something funny from that. So, yeah, Brandon, what did you think? Uh, uh, yes, but Leonardo DiCaprio never had a fever dream of giving an emotional speech. Well, in fact, he is in a catatonic state, which I love that bit. <laughs> no, true that. That that was so funny. I didn't, again, another moment where they threw a curveball at us where you're not expecting something. And it's not like it's integral to the plot but it's funny the style of the show is very witty and funny and i really appreciated that and that is i think the biggest benefit of only murders which is that you brought up the uh the ending tag with selena from the beginning if this was a binge series we would all know it we would all be thinking about it and coming into it but no it's been you know 10 weeks or something like that and we completely forgot about it i also am very glad it wasn't oscar because i saw the hoodie early on and i thought oh it's gonna be oscar and then you know it's bunny i thought okay that sucks but like good oscar's alive i like them they're cute um this was a very solid finale i love Amy Ryan is having a time with this role. Like, she is clearly having the time of her life reading this dialogue with this kind of weird, funny murder shtick of it all. And again, going towards that relationship with Charles, I think that was great. Uh, I love the sort of, you know, splitting off of, you know, Mabel and Oliver thing where Mabel kind of finally snaps it. Not snaps, but like almost snaps at the thing. It's like, Oliver, shut up. Like, people are dying. We need to move on with this. And I think that goes to the point of like, this is a comedy more than anything. So despite my issues of, you know, how it might handle true crime or whatever, they kind of don't matter in the sense, because at the end of the day, it is a comedy. And I laugh thoroughly and I think of the mystery works thoroughly. I'm fascinated to see what season two setup is going to be. I have a theory it might take place in a prison. That could be great. But as far as a whole overall finale, I was satisfied. Speaking of season two speculation, we get a scene from Tina Fey and her character and their assistant um, kind of covering Mabel and the trio going into their police car. And I almost thought, ooh, if season two opens up like with following Tina Fey's podcast, because that's the one that really inspired them, I got, ooh, like I would love to see her recurring because the little scenes that she had, she was hilarious and she was so like up on her pedestal, so different from like this little indie podcast that's taking place over on the other street that I think reintroducing her character in the second season uh, would really contribute to like the team's banter. That, that's what sparked in my head when I saw her character return. You have just given me a fascinating setup for season two, which is that it, it combines mine and yours, which is that the murder is in the prison where they are and that they have to consult with Tina Fey and her assistant because they can't get, you know, podcast equipment in the prison. So it's a back and forth thing of like, oh, Tina Fey now has the podcast, but they're like the actual talent still behind it. And seeing Martin Short in, in prison or whatever, or seeing his character in the prison, that would be so hilarious. To think of it objectively, I also find, you know, that the plot did really wrap quickly. I do kind of wish we saw a little bit more wrap with Jan because the way it ended was she, she basically got punched in the face and then arrested. I don't know. There was so much build up to who's the murderer in the building. And, you know, you follow these episodes, as Brandon said, week by week, it wasn't a binge watch. So I don't know what I would have done differently at the moment, but it just felt like things wrapped so quickly. And then it's like, on to the next one right away. But I guess that's what you get with a 30-minute runtime. You only have so much to shove into it. But, um, you know, just for what it's worth, that was kind of at the top of my mind. But overall, for a rating, I, I would probably give the entire series like a solid 9 out of 10, 
I loved it so much and I would absolutely recommend it to everybody. Sorry, one last thing in tease to that. Uh, my theory last week that Sting was responsible because all the poison, no, no, nothing. I'm just stupid. Sorry, let's Out go the window. You're not stupid. I mean, we haven't seen him since. He'll probably come back in the second season, maybe, if they could afford Sting. I was not expecting this to be as fun and entertaining as it was, especially for me as someone who doesn't love true crime stories that much. But again, these three carry it. And like, kudos to Steve Martin and John Hoffman for making this work. For me, it's a very solid eight and a half. Again, I think you could have maybe done with, you know, another episode, maybe even two. Um, but I think the way that creatively it paces itself out, the humor that it has, the unbelievable chemistry between, you know, the Martins and Selena, which again, how that happened, I will never know. But this is a great success for Hulu. I think you can recommend this to anyone and they will just get a huge kick out of it. The setting is great. I was a really big fan of it. So yeah, and of course, excited for season two, whatever it may bring. My rating for Only Murders in the Building, season one, I'm right there with you, Sam. I think this is a nine because it really takes the love and the the really fandom, the fan base that arises around true crime murder podcast and turns that into a TV show and just does it so well, does it so hilariously that I think no matter what you know audience group you're a part of, I think you should visit this and really find something to enjoy because every episode is different. And I found myself liking new things as we moved across the series. And I think that's all we have for Only Murders today. I'm looking forward to whenever the second season will come up. So for now, though, we will go to our next segment, our directorial debuts. So for this week, we had Catherine Hardwick's 13. It's a 2003 film. And so I uh, will toss it over to Brandon to give us our, our intro. Uh, this is the debut feature from Catherine Hardwick, who, if you don't know, is probably best known for her work on Twilight, uh, the first Twilight movie. She also did uh, the nativity scene. She did Miss Bala from a couple of years ago. This is her first project. Uh, she got her start in the industry as a production designer for a bunch of things under Richard Linklater and David O. Russell. This was her first project, which she also co-wrote with uh, Nikki Reed, who at the time was an incredibly young performer. I believe she was actually like 14 at the time. And they essentially made an agreement of, oh, I'm going to direct whatever you write. And it got picked up by Fox Searchlight. This is the result. It stars Evan Rachel Wood as Tracy, who is this young girl living in basically turn of the millennium uh, Los Angeles. She lives with her mother, played by uh, Holly Hunter, and her brother, played by uh, Brady Corbett from 24. And they are essentially, they're not, you know, poor or anything, but they're kind of, you know, running by the seat of her pants. Her mom is running haircuts in their uh, in their house. Her dad is off running his business somewhere. Their parents are divorced. So she's dealing with a whole bunch of things. She feels kind of alone and, you know, enter into Evie. I've been played by Nikki Reed. She is basically a bad girl for all intents and purposes. She, you know, is kind of the it girl at school. You know, everyone thinks she's super hot and super wonderful and everything. But she kind of, you know, goes about in very, you know, let's just say not the most morally correct ways. And uh, Tracy kind of sees her as a mentor figure, as kind of a best friend figure. And they kind of, the movie is just kind of them bonding at this incredibly young age over, you know, shoplifting and drugs and tattoo piercings and, you know, all this really, you know, nasty kind of stuff, but that they find, you know, genuine common love and affection in when the world seems to just be kind of, you know, shutting them out and being, you know, uncool, so to speak. Uh, Sam, I want to get started with you because I know some of your thoughts on this, but I want to get into it. What was your experience with Catherine Hardwick's uh, filmography prior to this? And what was your general thoughts on 13 as a whole? Yeah, to be honest, my only experience with Catherine Hardwick stuff before this was um, Twilight, because we we'd mentioned Twilight as one of her films that she's had before. I, I'd personally never seen Lords of Dogtown, but um, I, I really didn't know much about her before this. So uh, Brandon and I were talking a bit just off off camera, off screen, whatever you want to call it. Um, 
And for me, I think I respect the film more than I like it. I don't think it was really my cup of tea. I kind of found it hard to believe that at 13, all of this is going on in this person's life. I, I don't know. That, to me, they just look way older than 13 too, both of the lead actresses. And I, I, I kind of found the story hard to believe. Um, and, and I don't know, like for me, that kind of took me out of the perspective on this movie. And so I respect it for the message it's trying to send across that, you know, like drugs are bad. Uh, when people are young, when they're teenagers, you know, sometimes they don't make the right decisions. So it is a very big coming of age film, but otherwise, you know, it was something that I, I guess I just couldn't get behind the plot and I couldn't believe it as much as you know some other coming of age stories that are similar to this so uh, i do credit the acting i do think that the mom plays a phenomenal role please remind me of which actress that is who plays the mom again holly hunter yeah i thought she played her she did a really really good job uh, and there were times when i kind of physically felt her pain in a way and and you know i, I really appreciated that but otherwise you know I, I don't i wasn't a huge fan of the movie myself but um i know that brandon kind of has some different thoughts but noah i don't know any thoughts from your point of view so um what did you think of 13 for its realism i was trying to just put myself back in 2003 when this movie was released i was thinking to myself okay being 13 at that time i mean i have right now i have a 13 year old sister uh she may be 14 tony i'm sorry if you're listening to this um (laughs) who is a freshman in high school and so just to see somebody that young i think experiencing that level of i think insecurity and then trying to you know, adjust their life in such dramatic and drastic ways just because of what they see around them at school was really heartbreaking for me because we've all been there and we all know what it's like to feel like you need to change in order to be accepted by those around you at such a young age. And I think that's where I was tethered to this movie was just, you know, in constant heartbreak because I'm like, these are decisions that kids do you know, it's terrible, but they do, they do make decisions similar to these, whether it's in their drug choices or in their, um, their uh, sexual activity or it's in their uh, relationships with their parents. It's just, I had some gripes with the film just because of my own upbringing and just being so frustrated at how disobedient the, the, the daughter was, Evan Rachel Wood was, Tracy, to her mother. And her mother really is there to try and care for her and nurture her. And at times it is shown how hard it can be for uh, Tracy's mom. But just, you know, coming from your own background, it's like, it was so hard for me to watch that and just be so, you know, comfortable with like, okay, that's the most the mother can do. I'm like, no, like take off her door. Like, you know, go to those measures that are like, you know, you, it felt like you were, lo- it felt like the mother was losing the daughter. And I think that was, that was the most heartbreaking thing. Um, Evan Rachel Wood, I'm so, I'm such a fan of her in Westworld. I adore Westworld. And so to see her and her um, in her beginnings, I'm not sure if this was her, you know, how early on in this career, in the, her career, this was for her, um, but she was great. I thought that she, I hated her, which is perfect, right? Like she definitely played the role. <laughs> Um, Nikki Reed, when I learned that she had also uh, been attached as a writer, uh, was very impressed because I think that this movie, I mean, it, it went on to receive Academy Award noms. Um, and then, and then I asked myself, oh, well, I wonder if Catherine Hardwick has worked with Nikki Reed in the, in the future. Yeah, that's Rosalie in all the Twilight films. So I was like, what? Like, and then, you know, you get a flash of all those images. It was great to see Vanessa Hudgens, um, you know, that was kind of like a surprise role for me was I was like, oh my gosh, is that Vanessa Hudgens? And it was, I, I like what the movie does. You know, it, it's not something that is super surprising. 
I think, because you know it's going to go through the roller coaster of, you know, how bad can this be before it's at its worst? And it's always further than where you think it is. Um, but And by the time things turn around, it's almost like it's just at the very end of the movie. I feel like Evie's character got a bit too, like, repetitive for me. I, I did kind of want to see something new from her uh, by, by the time we got to the end of the movie, because, again, it was the same thing of just compulsive lying when it comes to her aunt, who's really her cousin, um, and just, like, honestly leeching off of Tracy as if she was a life source. And then it, it hurt so much because here was somebody who really wanted help but didn't have the resources or really the upbringing to know how to ask for it. So this was her method of coping. And, and I think that was just terrible. Um, Holly Hunter, I, I, I'm familiar with the actress, but I haven't seen a lot of um, her work, but agree with you both. Like she was great. I think the film style too. I liked the way the camera moved throughout the house. It didn't surprise me that like this was shot so well, even though it takes place almost not majority, but a lot of scenes happen inside the house. And I was like, Oh my gosh, this is just like twilight. It's always happening in the house. The house looks like a mansion because of the way these things are shot. Um, Brandon, I want to hear from you. What do you think? Yeah. I just want to quickly point out Holly Hunter nominated for an Academy award on this. I think well-deserved number two. I'm so glad you brought up the visuals on this because originally as the film was ending, I kind of thought, Oh, you know, Elliot Davis, same cinematographer as Twilight, you know, worked with Catherine Hardwick many, many times before. That makes sense. But at the start of the movie, it's a very different color scheme. And I appreciate how as the movie goes forward, that's that blue saturation, that signature Twilight blue thing that Catherine Hardwick and Elliot Davis do. It becomes more and more prevalent, almost as a way of like framing the haziness of uh, of Tracy's life. I, I had to go back and like, wait a second. Oh, my God, they're doing this. That's such a good observation. You are so right, because I I blocked that out of my memory about Twilight, that, you know, there's that blue tone over the film. Double D, double die. Um, <laughs> I had to. Um, no, he, I'm kind of with Sam a little bit on this, but a little bit more positive, because I love the fact that Catherine Harvick and Nikki Reed pull no punches with this. And actually, Nikki Reed has gone on record on uh, in a couple of years in the past. She's not particularly proud of this, apparently. Like, she wishes she had written it a bit more complexly. She thinks she went a bit harder on it. And this was based on primarily some of her life experiences about, you know, dope dealing and, you know, abusive parents and stuff like that. But the thing is, I kind of like where they go with this because you follow, you know, Tracy as this lead. And I agree with you. There's There are reasons for Tracy to be as kind of unhinged as she gets and kind of, you know, as, you know, uh, confused as she gets. But towards a certain point, you're like, okay, you just don't want to talk to your mom. But... I love the fact that it leans into the fun that Tracy and Evie have with this, because I think a movie can lean into, you know, quote unquote, morally corrupt things, as long as it's having fun with it and it knows what it's doing. And I felt like Catherine Harwood never loses the grip of where this movie is going. Like, these are two kids, kids, keep that in mind, who are going off the rails and just have no other business and no other interest than doing that. And I love when the film just takes bullet, like the scene with um, the two of them and they're making out with their boyfriends or when they're stealing from Melrose. And like, there's such joy in those scenes. Like, you know, it's wrong, but it's that thing of you kind of get wrapped up in it. At the same time, though, I kind of felt that aside from the mother-daughter dynamic, the other relationships kind of fell apart. I didn't find the brother all that interesting. I didn't find the dad when he comes back to the picture all that interesting. Um, and I didn't find uh, Evie's mom that interesting either. Like the movie kind of wants you to feel this thing of like, oh, this is like some kind of, you know, commenter and like, you know, how people have kids way too young and they, you know, don't necessarily have career paths and everything. I didn't love the character to that degree. Uh, but again, like on a technical level, I think there's really cool bits and pieces in there, especially if you like Catherine Harvick's later work. I love Lords of Dogtown. I appreciate the first Twilight for what it is. 
Uh, and I love uh, Miss You Already, this little film that you did with uh, Drew Barrymore and Julianne Moore a couple of years ago, which is really underrated. So I appreciated those things and I appreciated where the movie embraces that sort of, you know, mess of that age going and where it ends. I think it ends incredibly emotionally. Like the last 10 minutes are beautiful and poignant. I nearly teared up and I was really impressed by it. So I appreciate a lot of this, but I completely understand it is not for everyone. I wanted to add that talking about a story that becomes unhinged the further that you go in it. I was reminded of Mother by Darren Aronofsky. Ah. As I was watching it, things started to unfold and just become so chaotic and fast and, you know, blurred that it made me feel the chaos that I felt when I was watching Mother. Of course, you know, starring Jennifer Lawrence, I'm sure you both have seen it. Um, So, you know, take that for what it is. And then I thought uh, the tagline, it's happening so fast. That's it's so fitting because when you watch the movie, you really do feel the sense of them trying to age these girls trying to age themselves so fast and the movie itself taking their actions and expediting them. Each next thing that they do is worse and it happens quicker than the last. Yes. And I should also just quickly add the soundtrack is early 2000s as um, let's go to our ratings. If we're uh, done with details real quick, uh, Sam, over to you first rating out of 10. Yeah, I'd give it like a five. And that's all because of Holly Hunter for me personally. <laughs> I did a five. I'm going to be the generous one then. I'm going seven and a half and Noah's showing us our notes. Um, I'm we needed go- proof. It was unbelievable. <laughs> I had to show you. I was like, I don't want to just piggyback on Sam's five and be like, five. But I had to tell you. That. I told him that he shouldn't copy my homework. He has to at least make it look like he tried. <laughs> Hashtag but Noah's no, for- a cheater. <laughs> Brandon, I'm sorry. Go on ahead. You had another comment. No, totally. My, my rating was a 7.5. I admire a lot of this. I think Catherine Hardwick is a really underappreciated director. And actually, literally just before I was, I was researching this, she has a new project coming out with Tony Collette, who apparently takes over like this mafia organization in Italy. Sounds fascinating. So I, this Wait, way what? Saying, it's a comedy. It's a <laughs> that comedy sounds too. like my kind of thing. So It sounds exactly like your thing. Yeah, I'm um, a little scared. Okay, I'm, I'm here for it. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah, but I, I really appreciate Evan Rachel Wood and Nikki Reed's performances in this. And actually, if, if any of you get the chance, go look up. There's a reunion that uh, Catherine Hardwick, Evan Rachel Wood, and, um, and Nikki Reed did for the reunion for this. And it's actually really fascinating watching them all sit down and dissect it all, you know, years later. But I really appreciate what she does with this, the grittiness of it all, the kind of, you know, the kind of reveling in all that and everything, you know, how aesthetic wise it works. Again, not everything about it works. It's very imperfect, but it never overstays its welcome, which I can admire too. And with that, we have wrapped up episode 10 of Plot Devices. Thank you guys so much for tuning into this. 10 episodes straight, and you know, you haven't kicked us off Spotify or Apple Podcasts yet. Speaking of Spotify and Apple Podcasts, why don't you follow us there? Spotify and Apple Podcasts at Plot Devices. New episodes up every Sunday evening slash Monday morning, whatever my you know editing self can get to it. But they're up there every week. And why don't you follow us on social media as well? We have Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Plot Devices Pod. That's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Plot Devices Pod. I want to thank my co-hosts for today. First of all, Samantha and Corvaya. Sam, thank you for joining us. Where can the people find you and uh, what do you got going on? Yes, people can find me on Twitter at S underscore and Corvaya or on Instagram at Sam I am 520. And uh, I have a review for Last Night in Soho that's coming up. I know I've teased it for the last two episodes now, but it is officially coming up because it will be in theaters Friday, October 29th. So uh, that's my big to do. And I'm very, very excited about it. 
You can find me on Twitter at Noah's Plotting. Uh, in this next week, I'm going to make it out to the theaters again to just go and see the movie Antlers. In addition to Last Night in Soho, I have to make sure I fit in both of those before our Saturday recording because I really do want to engage in conversation with you, Sam, about Last Night in Soho. And I want to be able to provide to our listeners that horror uh, take on the new Antlers. So can't wait to see both of those. Uh, it's going to be a very exciting horror discussion next week. I need the help. So I'm very excited to hear that. Noah. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. First of all, uh, Dune review coming out this week on ASU Odyssey. Check that out. I might have another piece in the works, you know, follow my social media. I'll get that in a second, but getting to next show, it means that I'm going to have to make a horror decision as a wimp, either last night in Soho or antlers. It will probably be last night in Soho. So stay tuned. for. You that. will survive. You will survive. If I survived, you will survive. That's true. That's the only saving grace I have. And you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. That's Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. Follow my band, uh, Killbox at Killbox underscore music on Twitter and Instagram. And that'll essentially do it for the show today. For myself, for Noah Guzman from uh, Samantha Carfaya, this has been a Dune-packed episode, decennial of plot devices. And we hope you will see you next week for episode 11. We'll see you next time. And episodes! Woo-hoo! Woo-hoo! Mom, I made it. Woo-hoo!